All right, real quick, people, before we get into today's show, we've just released a new course, Periodization for Periods, all around how to train women around their monthly cycle, and we've got it on special. If you're interested, click the link in the show notes. You are now listening to the Fitness Education Online Podcast, the podcast where fitness professionals go to grow their fitness business. If you're in the fitness industry, you'll find tips and strategies from proven business experts. Now, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Bro Science Podcast. Really excited today for a great topic, uh, something that's really important for I suppose many of us have been involved in contact and physical sports for you know throughout our lives, and or we've got kids who are involved in these sort of sports. Uh, we're going to be talking about concussion today. Uh, so first up, Craig, thank you for joining me, and thank you for putting in all the hard work to to research the topic uh, as we dive into it today. No worries, Trav. Uh, always excited to be here and, and chat. And this is a, a topic that's probably close to both of our hearts. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, but you've actually had a few concussions before. Is that? Yes. Yeah. So if we're, <laughs> you know, like I said, or between the two of us, I would say we've we've been involved in full contact sport for the best part of 40 years between the two of us, I suppose. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, um, you know, I've played uh 24 25 odd seasons of rugby league which which um, equates to probably what 400 games yeah probably close to that um yeah probably yeah in the 300s i would think uh and then uh, obviously yourself you've you've had a few smatterings of a few other sports you played a bit of union yep. um anyone yeah, who sees me... a little clip of this you've got a, a bit of a black eye at the moment from that's from a book to the face that's from a the book the, to the face the deadly the deadly toddler that one that one's from a toddler toddler induced a toddler induced from, black eye that wasn't from <laughs> consensual punching no no that was a that was a non-consensual book to the face it was um yeah that was yeah be be the, warned be warned when there's a toddler jumping on you the value of education it's good yeah yeah so um but yeah i mean so you, you again so you've played probably towards 400 games of, of rugby league mm. for myself i've probably played you know between rugby league rugby union i've probably played two 300 games mm. um plus on top of that been involved with jujitsu kickboxing for the last 10 years which you know jujitsu is pretty good in regards to you know head contact um in that there isn't much of it uh but say kickboxing i've been doing that once a week full contact sparring like i said for probably 10 years so let's say if i go 40 times 35 times a year that's 350 sessions of that i would imagine um, on a conservative side of things and and in this time i I would i would estimate myself uh in that time i do we do go through concussion protocols with kickboxings which we're going to talk about today but i would say i would estimate in my time i've had probably anywhere from six to 10 concussions. Um, I would say in this time over the last, you know, 20, 20 plus years of contact sport. And I think of that, you know, I'd say six to 10, but of that, I would say I've probably had three or four bad concussions. Yeah, I, I would have, yeah, I think you're probably... I guess it gets into the point of like, what is a concussion? I, I would say you'd probably had six to 10 incidents, whether or not they all resulted mm. in, in a sort of, I guess, a clinical um, diagnosis of a concussion. 
um, from my experience, like I, I know about uh, at least two proper ones that you had playing rugby league in the latter parts of your uh, mm-hmm. master's career. Um, uh, two, yeah, two particular ones that were both pretty, pretty um, significant and you had mm-hmm. a fair bit of uh, loss of memory and uh, um, had some significant symptoms. But uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if you've had that many from your, your striking type sports otherwise, but... I think one, maybe two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like well, well, I did fracture the orbital, which... Mm-hmm. It wasn't. I wasn't great after it, <laughs> uh, mm. but I was all right. You know, like I was able to drive. I was. I was. I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't bad the days after. But it did yeah. take me like, if I had to do a concussion test within fifteen minutes of, of that yeah. happening, I think I would be failing it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's uh, the whole point of the, the whole point of the concussion testing is you want to pick up. You don't want to miss any concussions, so mm. you're going to pick up uh, a bunch of extra things that maybe wouldn't fit the criteria for concussion. But the whole idea is you'd rather um, you'd rather ninety nine non concussed people uh, be taken out of play than than one person with a concussion allowed allowed back on there at risk of uh, further injury and further damage. So I guess it's probably a good point to sort of discuss what like what is a concussion? Like when you're talking about from your point of view as a as as you know as as in touch with a common man as as you possibly could be as a lay a lay slightly more lay person but you're still not overly you probably don't fit that definition very well because of your um education and experience what's your understanding of a concussion what would you say a concussion is i would say it's when your brain rattles around inside your skull so you know like there's there's the fluid layer that that covers your brain and your skull and your brain rattles around because of whatever reason i suppose it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily need to be a direct hit to the head it -hmm. could be a whiplash um situation and I'm guessing it's bruising or I don't know whether it's bruising of the brain or whether it's just, yeah, it's just been, you've had your bell rung or I don't know what the, yeah, I don't actually know, you know this is me repeating things, you know, like I, yeah. but I don't know what the, you know, what the clinical diagnosis or the, the definition would be. Yeah. Well, essentially you sort of, you know, you definitely floating around all the all the sort of salient points there. So it's a mild brain injury, essentially, is what a concussion is. So we talk about sort of head injuries and, and brain injuries. Um, and a mild brain injury, the first sort of furthest, the least severe of those is, is essentially a concussion. So people get really nasty head injuries and serious brain injuries from car accidents and big falls and all that sort of stuff, you know, learning how to walk again and bleeding on the brain and all that sort of stuff. So on the very first part of that spectrum is, is essentially a concussion. So it's a traumatic brain injury, um, usually caused by some external biomechanical force. And as you said, it doesn't necessarily need to be caused by a direct blow. So in terms of how this can happen in sport, obviously we think about it in contact sports. So that would be when the head contacts another object. So another player usually, most mm-hmm. likely. So they are, you know, a swinging arm. Um, head like on we head, saw in, head on yeah, ground. Like we, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um you know, hip to head, shoulder to head, mm. any of those things. So common, commonly head clashes or high tackles or those sort of things. Well, but as funnily you said, enough, I was gonna, just, just to interrupt, funnily enough, it doesn't happen often with high tackles. It's, it's usually, this is part of the debate around like football is where they're trying to get people to tackle lower and mm. most of the concussions are happening to the person doing the tackling and yep. it's, it's head on head with like another player yep. from their own team. You know, yep. or head on hip is, is probably the most common. 
Well, I guess you've got to think of the like the biomechanics of it. If you've got if there's a, a high arm hitting you in the head, you know, mm. the forces will move displace that arm somewhat. So your mm-hmm. head's going to move that arm out of the way. Your head's not going to move that person. You know, if you've got two that coconuts hit. that hit each other, you know, mm-hmm. two hard skulls, um, you know, that's going to be hard. If you're hitting someone in their center of gravity, so if you're hitting someone's shoulder or someone's hip, they're, they're not displacing very fast. So all the force is going to be transmitted to your head. So if you're tackling, you put your head in the wrong side and you get their their body weight coming through, then that's that's where there's not a lot of give. But like a swinging arm, you know, um, it's not as common it to can, see. It's not as common to no. see, but it did happen. It did happen in, in one of the recent rugby league games. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then, obviously, the other one you mentioned was um, you know head to ground, and that's probably how I I had a pretty nasty concussion uh, last year, um, and that was related to making a tackle as someone sort of went past me and my chin hitting the ground. I had a big. I've actually still got a bit of um, scar tissue on my chin from that. Um, that I, I smacked the ground with my chin. And um, yeah, got a concussion from that, from hitting the ground. And from that point, you know, it doesn't actually need to be a contact sport all of a sudden mm. because you can fall over playing soccer. You can, you know, you can fall over walking the dog and hit your head and get a concussion. So when we're talking about, uh, and I guess what we want to talk about here today is sports-related um, concussion. And so, you know, any any sport where you may fall and hit your head, you know, that might be basketball, that might be netball. You know, there are options of non-contact sports where this can happen. And even in non-contact sports, there are other forces that are transmitted through to the skull. So what one of the other really common ones they talk about is, you know, headers in, in, in football, in soccer. Mm. Um, you know, that's a lot of force for people to be kicking a ball, you know, 30, 40 metres, and then you change in direction of that ball with your head. Um, that's not an insignificant force. Um, furthermore, it can be transmitted forces. So they do talk about sort of micro shock sort of stuff. So even if you had a fall onto your feet, you know, the, the, the impact up through your skeleton to rattle your brain is, you know, potentially non, not well, insignificant. Well, one thing I was going to say there, one that I've heard is jet skiing. Apparently jet skiers get it from the, the basically the force of the water yep. through the, the handles, through to their, you know, through to yeah, their brain. Yeah, so any, any, any kind of impact. And, and the interesting thing about that is you actually think about the biomechanics of the body, like your skeleton is what can transmit the force. So if you haven't got any joints to um, augment that, so if you're on a jet ski, you're sitting. So any force that your your jet ski hits goes up, you know, into your pelvis, up your spine, straight to your head. Whereas like if you're jumping and landing, hopefully you're using a little bit mm. of your, you know, using your calves and Achilles and your quads and your legs and your glutes to absorb some of that force. But if you get a, you know, if you get a straight up um, strike up up your spine, it sort of, it, it travels up that way. But yeah, that, that would definitely be a way like, you know, you don't have to spend that long on, you know, a jackhammer to feel like your brain's been rattled. Even when we've played around with, um, with you know, massage guns and percussion guns, if you do it up near your back of your neck, you you know, mm-hmm. your teeth start to rattle and, you, and your head sort of can be affected. So as you sort of said at the start, your, your brain is, is encased in your skull, which is a, you know, a, a, a solid box. Mm-hmm. You know, your brain's essentially a, 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 jelly to- a jelly-like substance and there's a surrounding of fluid that, that envelops the brain that allows... The, the brain sort of, I guess, to move somewhat. And what we're talking about is that the brain itself can move and impact on the inside of the skull. And as you said, it can be a whiplash sort of thing. So maybe the head doesn't strike anything, but there's a deceleration. That means, you know, you're moving at speed and you move forward. Um, you know, your skull's not going anywhere. Your, your brain keeps moving forward and it bashes into the front of your skull. And then as you, re, as you rebound, it can bash back into the back. And they even talk about that in 
specific traumas that you get this thing called a contra coup injury. So someone gets struck on the back of the head, but they actually get bruising on the front of their brain because it's, you know, the head goes forward and the brain hits the front of the skull. So you got to kind of think about it as, as it's sort of, you know, um, you know, your brain can rattle around in your, in your skull somewhat. So all of those forces can, can make a, can make an impact. So outline now, I suppose, who it can happen to, mm-hmm. what it is, why, why is this so important? Why has this become something that's, you know, I think changed dramatically in the last decade, I suppose, mm. um, the, this, the, the talk of brain injuries and brain health has just changed dramatically in the last decade. Yeah, definitely. And, and I guess we've sort of spoken about what it is maybe on a technical term on like what, um, what's actually happening and, you know, what happens to the brain. But, you know, one that you can probably answer quite well, like what does it mean for you to have a concussion? If you think about probably the worst one that you had hmm. um, playing that semi-final, I assume the worst one that you had um, yeah. in at, at, at Cogra. Um when you know, I think we actually went up to hospital that day because you maybe you split your lip as well. I can't, I can't, yeah, exactly, yeah, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure I ended up in hospital we, after that. Yeah, one. we went through ED for that one, I think, just to make sure everything was, um, was okay because you had a few red flag signs. What, what did that concussion mean to you on that day and then moving forward from that? Because were you still teaching yeah. at that time? I'm trying uh, to remember. Yeah, if... no, I think I was still teaching. Um, I yeah. think I was definitely like I was, I think I was still teaching then for sure. So because you were still living in the unit because I remember you, um, you were struggling to get in and out of your in and out of your apartment, going mm. up a few flights of stairs. So, yes. what did it mean for you? Like, the, so the following... that was probably my worst one. And that one, I mean, I don't obviously I remember bits and pieces of it now, but I I don't know whether I was knocked out as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think by the time people got to me, I was awake, but I don't remember it. Um, I believe I was stretched off, um, but again, I don't really remember that either. Um, I do sort of remember the incident and it was a head on head, I believe, um, friendly fire, I think. Um, for me, I do remember being under, underneath in the stadium um, and people asking me and me just just having like um, no recall. So I was I was like, hey, okay, you know, like we're ready to play. And then people were like, no, no, we've played and, and you got knocked out or you got concussed. And I'm like, oh, okay, did we win? And I was like, no, no, we lost. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I was like, okay, well, should I be getting ready to play now? And I, I think that went on for a while um, for memory. Um, and little things like not knowing time frames, not knowing the day, and then moving on. I mean, that was, I, I think that took me about a month before I felt right again, you know. So the first little bit was, was light and light sensitivity and, and concentration and focus. And then... But yeah, it took me about a month. Like, there's no way. Like, uh, like having watched players in, say, the NRL or that, where they've been knocked out, um, and then they go through the testing and they come back and play the next week. I don't think I physically couldn't have played. I don't think I physically could have played because I felt sick. So I think it was um, it was another one that I had, which was a bit of a mystery one, which we don't actually know how I got it. Uh, where it was the week before the fitness convention, and yeah. so I was going to have two weeks off for like fitness convention and, and I think it was Easter or something like that. And so anyway, so I went to the fitness convention and I remember doing like just some activity at that and just feeling really nauseous and just like, I can't do this. Like I, mm. and this was a week after and I, I didn't even really realize at that point that it was like a, well, I did then uh, like 
but I didn't, I hadn't noticed before that, that I had lingering symptoms of yeah. that one until that moment when I went to exercise. Um, and I was like, Ooh, I don't feel well. I'm like, geez, that must be from the, the concussion the week before. Or, um, yeah, so they, they've been two of the, the worst ones in regards to long-term effects. Um, mm-hmm. I have had other ones where it's, I've had a hit in the head and, you know, like I've stood up and face planted and, um, but that one from memory, I didn't have, I didn't have any, um, any lingering effects after that one, you know, so these these are the only two where I've had lingering effects from, to be honest. Yeah. And I would, and, and that's sort of, I guess, those are the ones that we'd probably see as more typical, like concussion diagnosis in that I've had a few ones where you've sort of, you know, you're a bit stunned and, um, you know, over the years as a junior and you've got a bit of a headache and you feel a bit average and, but you're up the next day and you feel fine. There's no mm. sort of after effects. Um, the one that I had uh, last year myself was probably the first time where I've had those symptoms where my balance was shot for a couple of weeks. Um, I had headaches. Um, I had sort of, you know, um, you know, neck pain, um, you know, poor appetite, really low exercise tolerance. So it is a case of, you know, understanding there's a difference between getting a knock and, you know, sleeping it off, you know, uh, taking it easy and then, you know, you're straight back into it. So the whole idea of what a concussion actually does to you is it it knocks you around. Like it's it's nasty. So as I said at the start, it's part of this spectrum of, of a, you know, a head injury, a brain injury. So through to the people that take, you know, nine months to learn how to walk again, mm-hmm. it's a mini effect of that. So So these symptoms can last for... A period of time so as you said you had a nasty one that lasted for up to a month you know it's not unusual for for these symptoms to last for a while and, and you do see in sports that it's not always a week off sometimes sometimes these guys are off for a month they're off for mm. six weeks um and part of the reason is they've, they've got those acute symptoms that aren't getting better but the things that we're starting to understand about why it is so important and why things have changed is we're starting to realize that that issue isn't just you know, it isn't just on the day of the activity. It isn't just that you've had your bell rung and you need to take it easy and, you know, back on the horse and continue on. It's that these nasty ones, you, get, you can have symptoms that linger for, for days, weeks, even months. And now what, what we've found over the last few years is that, you know, this, this does cause long-term permanent damage. And, and there, was always, um, there was always a bit of history around this. And um, interestingly... It, it, during my my uh, further training in sports medicine sort of stuff, I did I did actually um, one of my major assignments around um, re- recurrent concussions and um, what that means for an athlete longer term, or even just a not even a professional athlete, just a you know just a weekend warrior like ourselves. Um, and it sort of talked about historically there was always this this um, understanding of the whole punch drunk syndrome mm. for boxers. Um, and one of the crazy ones you see in the textbooks is um, like an old school black and white photo of a boxer at the start of his career. And by the end of his career, and he goes from looking like quite a, you know, switched on, um, you know, handsome young man to, you know, looking a bit goofy and looking, looking, looking like, like he's most like, yeah, exactly. So they sort of knew that it can affect people. They go from, you know, performing a certain way, having a certain personality to being, you know, looking a bit, um, you know, like they've got essentially a disability by the end because they've been, they've been rattled. So they sort of knew that existed in boxing. Um, there was a big push over a long time that that was a boxing problem. That was a getting punched in the head problem. And, you know, you knew about things like, um, 
you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, developing Parkinson's. They're like, oh, it's probably related to recurrent head traumas. So that was sort of always there. But really, this didn't become a big thing in the mainstream um, until uh, all the stuff that came out of the NFL in, in the US. And, um, and that's obviously been somewhat immortalized by the concussion film, which was all the story about it was a case of there was a recurrent pattern of um, these relatively young ex-NFL players. So in their sort of you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, in their midlife, developing symptoms that actually looked quite similar to sort of dementia or older age, you know, Alzheimer's type symptoms where you had guys who had big personality changes, becoming homeless, being involved in sort of violent crime. So like real changes in who they were and, and it was sort of becoming unusual and it was becoming a bit more of a pattern. And why it sort of became, I guess, bigger than Ben-Hur was that there was, a, there was obviously a commercial pushback from that. And, and if you've seen that movie, a part of the issue was that the NFL um, apparently sort of knew somewhat about these things were happening, but they suppressed it for some time. It actually resulted in a bunch of Congress hearings and all sorts of stuff to sort of review it. And from that, once it was, it was, uh, it was public knowledge and it had been discovered, they sort of came out with this, this new diagnosis, which was done by sort of Dr. Bennett Amalu, who's the doctor that Will Smith plays, and that's CTE, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And more or less, that's really, that's sort of trauma-induced dementia. So it's recurrent concussions leading to, um, you know, brain failure, more or less. And so that's become a, a bigger thing. And then that's, that's the understanding we've realized, well, any of these situations where people are getting these concussive forces are putting them at risk of developing the CTE. The crazy thing is we still know very little about this mm. on, on the fact that it, it doesn't appear to be a dose-related thing. So there's lots of evidence of, you know, boxers, rugby league players, NFL players who've had just as many hits to their head. Um, and one thing that they talk about is that sort of micro... Um, the micro traumas versus the macro traumas. So how many tackles they've done at practice, you know, rather than, you know, your big nasty one, it's, you know, how many punches have you actually taken? Because mm. maybe you develop a one, a 1% concussion every time you cop a punch, every time you're kind of like stunned, which, you know, goes away within five seconds. Maybe that's 1% of a concussion. So if you cop a hundred of those, is that equivalent to a full, a full concussion? So the answer is we still don't really know. What we know is that, a certain number of the population who um, suffer head injuries go on to have these long-term issues. Um, and, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more um, and later suppose, on. And I suppose, just interrupting there, I suppose yeah. it's directly related. Like they, they've gone like, so, because obviously Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's has always existed. Yep. Right? Yeah, and yeah. so... Obviously, I don't know what the percentage of people who experience this is. You know, let's say it's five percent of people experience mm -hmm. one of those three things at at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. I assume that the relationship between, say, the footballers, the boxers, the whatever, is outside that standard deviation. Yeah, one hundred percent. And that was the original findings that they found signs in their brain that we usually see in a, you know an eighty year old, ninety year old in these guys in their mid forties. And so it's very well demonstrated that it is related. You know, they, they, they more or less know that these recurrent head injuries do predispose to this. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily happen to everyone. So not, and, and that's one of the reasons that we don't necessarily need to be, 
you know, banning all contact sports because if we actually look over, we've been doing these things for a long time and there are a significant amount of the population that, that don't suffer these long-term consequences. So as you sort of said at the outset, you know, if we're talking about ourselves or our, or our kids, you know, there is a way to get through these kind of activities and sports for all the amazing benefits that sport and exercise have, limiting the, the risk that, that these sort of issues will have. So I guess that's an important thing to make to try and not, you know, turn people off playing contact sports because the whole idea is that we're trying to evolve them to make them safe to ensure that we're including as many people as possible and we're um, maximising participation, but at the same time, you know, protecting people and making them safe. So I guess from that point of view, the real reason is, is we want to make sure people are safe and they don't have long-term brain damage from, from these sort of things. That's why it's important. The other one that they that we do know about is is this sort of um, you know second second impact syndrome, which is essentially if someone gets an initial head injury and then they get a subsequent head injury in in short term, there's there's a phenomenon where where there is you know sudden death from that. So there is a, a concern that if people have a like a priming injury and then a secondary significant trauma, that that can cause an acute an acute um, issue, and that's a big reason why we don't want people running straight back on the park after they've had an initial head injury. Cause it's that second, you know, that second impact. Um, it's very, very vanishingly rare, but it has happened historically. And, and yeah. obviously that was the first thing that caused people to be of most concern. Cause the last thing you want to see is someone, you know, having a catastrophic injury whilst playing, you know, recreational or even competitive mm. sport. Uh, and then over time, we've started to understand these more chronic issues that we're trying to prevent. So when we talk chronic issues, like I mentioned, things like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, have they been, you know, directly attributed to, to CTE? Um, well, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard to say because CTE can only technically be diagnosed after someone has, has passed away because you need to actually get a, a bit of brain tissue and see the changes. Um, so it can be a bit complicated because any of these sort of neurodegenerative diseases, there, there can be a bit of overlap. Um, uh, and, and they sort of obviously can look similar. And we're still learning a lot about, about these things. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely there's a, there's a, there's a definite uh, subgroup of people who are developing these conditions mm. at an earlier well, time. Well, as, a, as an example of, you know, like famous people, you mentioned Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. Freddie Roach is a, is a famous boxing trainer. Um, you know, one that was in the news recently, Mario Fennec, a footballer mm -hmm. who's going through stuff. But then... Again, talking famous people, then going straight out of like out of the loop to people who I assume didn't suffer many concussions. Someone like Michael J. Fox mm -hmm. um, has had Parkinson's from you know at like a very yep. young age, um, or even Robin Williams who had um, Louis some some kind of dementia. dementia. Yeah, yeah, some kind of like type of dementia, and I assume neither of those guys were. Yeah, yeah. Had, so I mean, the, yeah. So there's a whole spectrum of neurodegenerative disorders and a lot of them fall into genetics. And it's probably a bit of an unknown factor of which genetics predispose people who are affected by contact sports to have an accelerated um, degeneration of, of their brain and their nervous system. Um, uh, yeah, so sports obviously not the only thing that leads to people having these, having these issues. And they've sort of long been known about that people can develop these problems. Um, and what we want to do is, you know, prevent the ones that can be prevented, obviously. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, I mean, apart from protecting your brain and not playing contact sports, I suppose, but like we said, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to protect you from some of this stuff anyway. Nowadays, what they do, if you are a football fan, you, you've been watching, they do something called the HIA, which is the Head Injury Assessment 
I assume mm-hmm. protocol or something like that, HIA. Yep. Um, it's something that, that they do now in, in the rugby league. Someone goes off with a head knock. Um, yep. And basically, it's a, it's a standardized test that people do. It's something that I've done. Um, I assume you've done it as well? Uh, to a certain effect. Uh, not, not so much in any of the things that I've participated in, but I've run the testing. Okay, so you've t- not done your yeah, own run- baseline uh, I've conducted the tests many times for okay. other people, but no, I haven't had to do a baseline test oh, okay. for myself. Um, there you go. So, just... so, I mean, as as information for those watching or listening, um, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I assume I'm going to be going to be right. Uh, what would happen is a player or a participant would have completed a baseline score of a test of this this HIA um, test uh, with. What that looks like is I've done it through my kickboxing, so we do it for that. Essentially, how it works is, you know, typically it starts with some words. So it's five words. They might give you, you know, like olive, orange, circle, hat, and, you know, like whatever, something else, right? Puma. And you've got to remember these five orange, words. Uh, olive, circle, hat, puma. Yep. You know why I remember those? That was my last ones that I did. They were, I think I had olive... Um, jaguar, um, orange, elbow, circle, and something else. I think they were my last test that I did, which was about a month ago. Um, anyway, so you get five words. That's sort of the start of the test. It takes about 15 minutes. From there, it goes through numbers. So it's like, you know, three, seven, four, and you've got to say them backwards. And then they add numbers. So then, you, then they go through to four numbers, five digits, and potentially even six digits. You've got to say them backwards. Um, say the months of the year backwards, which I always, funnily enough, struggle with a lot. <laughs> I have to start again at like July. I'm like, July was, okay. and then it's November. <laughs> yeah, so I always start again at like a midpoint of the year and go up and then go down. Um, days of the week, time of the day, some balance related stuff. So close your eyes, balance. Um, and then some, some reaction speed stuff. And then finally, they ask you at the end of this test, about 15 minutes at the end, now that I know what I'm doing, like I'm like, consciously trying to make better connections at the beginning of the test, they go, oh, what were those five words that we asked you at the very beginning? And then you've got to remember these five words, um, you know, 15 minutes down the track. And when it's the first time you've ever done it, you're like, I can't, I've got no idea. Like you, but now like last time I, I aced my last one, I got it all hundred percent right. Um, you know, because I, but, but now that I know what I've got to try and do, you know what I mean? So basically you do this baseline test. And then in the event that you have got a head knock, you've got to recreate these test results with, with some accuracy. Um, I've never had to do the recreation of the test results, but I do know that on a few of these times that I've had head knocks, there's no chance I'm recalling any of this stuff. Um, that a fair summary of, of what it is? Yeah, definitely. So I guess um, overarchingly, pretty much all sports that have a risk of this have some kind of concussion protocol. In the NRL, they call it the, the HIA um, within games, uh, but they all sort of have this overarching protocol. And and one of the things is what we're talking about is an assessment to try and diagnose a concussion. So the problem is that a concussion, you know, you don't necessarily see it at the time. As you mentioned, one of yours, you didn't really know you had a proper concussion until a week later when you were trying to exercise and you felt mm. average. So, you know, not only one that the individual... Well, as, not- I'll, I'll interrupt on that. Remember that, that particular one, I will, for the sake of... Uh, accuracy. That was the one where I'd come off the field and 10 minutes after I got off the field, I went like, have I played? 
and I'd forgotten I'd even played. You know, like, and, and there was no, was the, it was, that was the, the mystery sniper. concussion. There was no, like... The, the sniper head injury. So you knew you, about and, it. But, but, and you replaced yeah. me. I remember you replaced me. We came off and you were apparently talking to me and we were talking to each other. Yeah. And I had no recollection. I my, and then I just had on my shoulder, I believe. Yeah. I think that was all in the same game. It's a great game, <laughs> Action stations. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, there is a case that, you know, maybe people won't know themselves because, mm. you know, they're, they're, their brain's been rattled around, so you can't rely on self-reporting. Two, there's a motivation for people in elite sports. They don't want to come off. They don't want to be mm. injured. They don't want to let the team down. Um, so you need some kind of objective measure to um, determine whether someone has had a concussion or not. So what you've described is that everybody will have different levels of cognitive performance. And so the whole idea of this screening questionnaire is to get an idea across a few different metrics. So that's a memory test. That's a, that's a concentration test. That's a comprehension test to a certain level. That's also, um, you, so that's the uh, looking at a few different brain functions. And then you're going to look at how their nervous system functions. So what are their, what are their reflexes like? What's their balance like? Um, you know, getting a bit of an understanding. There's of, eye tracking as well. Um, you yeah, do an eye a, tracking one. Yeah, so there's a few different things that you're testing to try and work out what someone's baseline is. And it's really important because the most common one we see um, is you do a balance test and, and people with shoddy ankles, um, you know, they can't balance in the best of times. So you just need to make sure you're testing them against their own baseline because everyone's different. And so ideally at the start of a, a season or at the start of um, prior to competition, you have a baseline test so that if someone is injured and you're suspecting a possible head injury or concussion, you've got something to compare it to. So if they're not performing at that level, then you can make that diagnosis. So in terms of how that works, and I think it's, uh, you know, we're both rugby league fans. Um, we've recorded this the day after the NRL grand final. Um, so, you know, rugby league's our sort of thing. So I think it's probably worth talking about that because it's one that I know um, relatively well because I've been involved in a few NRL affiliated competitions. I've had to do the elite um, head injury concussion protocol training um, and what that HIA looks like in, in the NRL. So for understanding overarching, um, start of the season, everyone does their baseline testing, which you summarise really well. And then when you get to game day, the next thing is about identifying head injuries and concussions. And in the NRL, they actually have an independent, um, you know, team sitting watching the video footage to try and pick up any signs of, of um, concussion. So they've got an independent little team, but all they do is watch the game, watch players to see if there's any evidence of concussion to pick it up. So it's and not do the only independent up. people run the test or is it the in-house doctors that run the test? No, there's an independent HIA doctor that should be running the running test. In, in the, I, it sort of depends because in the, the things that I, the, the activities I cover, there's, you know, there's not an, every team doesn't have their own doctor. So you often, you know, mm. there'll, be, um, there'll be a HIA doctor covering the tournament and I'll be covering my team. And then if I'm doing the, the overall tournament coverage, I'll do the, the coverage. So it sort of depends on, on resources, but you do want it to be someone relatively independent if possible. Um, ideally as doctors and medical professionals, your priority is to the health of the patient. Um, so most of the time we hope that you can make a somewhat independent assessment, even if, you know, you can't have a completely independent doctor. Um, so if, if there's a, uh, an incident, or someone identifies possible symptoms, um, what they talk about is um, category one or category two signs or symptoms. So a sign is something that an external person observes. A symptom is something that the, um, that the, the player would report themselves. So if you identify a category one symptom, 
essentially that means you're confident that there's strong evidence for a concussion. That person is immediately removed from play and cannot return. That's the concussion is diagnosed. Um, the diagnosis is is made by a you know a, a medical doctor, um, uh, and they're removed from play, independent of whatever else goes on. So as soon as you see a category one symptom, doesn't matter if they're off for a HIA, their their game is done. And that's stumbling, you know, that's the classic try to stand up face face plant. Yeah. So there's actually yeah. So we can run through most of them. So there's eleven specific um, category one signs they talk about. So any clinical feature that suggests a head or cervical spine injury. Um, so that just is a coverall. So loss of consciousness, someone gets knocked out. If they fall to the ground without protecting themselves, so someone like a knockout in boxing, someone gets mm-hmm. hit and they, you know, face plant. Um, if there's any evidence of sort of seizure activity, that would be abnormal or abnormal posturing. Um, if they're confused or disorientated, lost memory, um, muscle incoordination, so getting up, falling over, um, they report significant symptoms, they behave abnormally, or, you know, lights are on no one's home. So if they're completely, you know, days not responding to questions, any of those things are enough to say category one symptom, you're done for the day, you're not coming back. And so really those ones, you're going to do a HIA test, but you're only going to do that to determine um, symptom progression to get a baseline for how they're going to recover from this acute injury. Mm, okay. Those those guys, you know, they're not coming back on the field. Even if they pass their test, they're not allowed back on. So mm-hmm. even if you do the test in the time, if you've had have, have the resources, they're not coming back on the field. If they've obviously been knocked out, obviously shown signs of a concussion. So that leaves us to the grey zone of what a category two symptom is, and this is what people know as the HIA system when they watch an NRL game. So those ones, there's an immediate removal um, from play for a, um, a medical officer assessment. Um, they may return to the game if a concussion is not diagnosed. Um, and then they must be monitored monitored by the head trainer, who's usually the orange shirt trainer in the NRL, um, if they're allowed to come back onto the game. And that's why sometimes you'll see people who pass the HIA and then are pulled off later because they're like, oh, you know, Obviously, it's not a 100% system, but if there's something that doesn't seem right, mm. they'll still err on the caution and take it. Happened, that actually happened recently in potentially in the final series with James Tedesco. He passed. They said he was coming back on. And then before he went to go back on, they pulled him. And I think Roosters were losing this game as well. So, like, yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't in their best interest to pull him. But then they, like, they claimed he passed. They said he was coming back on. And then, like, all of a sudden, that was like, no, actually, he's failed. He's not coming back on. Yeah. And so that's the thing. It's a dynamic assessment, right? Mm. And, you know, as, as you've sort of demonstrated, you, you were able to regurgitate the five words from a month ago. So mm. there's a potential of gaming this, uh, this system. And there was often, you know, um, suggestions that some of the elite players would purposely um, do worse on their baseline tests so that they would be able to pass even if they'd had a bit of a knock. Because at the end of the day, these guys, you know, they love it. They live and breathe it. They want to be back on the field, especially if they're one of the top-tier players. The last thing they want to be doing is being pulled from the team. And unfortunately, you know, the club, um, as much as people hope that their priority is the safety and wellness of their players, at the end of the day, you know, the fans want success, right? The club wants success. You know, coaches want success. And, and look, the, the players, players themselves want yeah. to. Yeah, they all want to win. They all want to do that. And, that, and that's so, evidence in, in, in days gone by where 
they go off. They, I mean, they almost stretch it off and then they come running back back on. Yeah. You know, I'm good coach. Put me back in there. So there's definitely part of that. And that's part of why this system's in there. And then the HIA system also gets a bit complicated because you've got to not punish people for getting an assessment. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the technicalities of how they manage that to make sure people aren't getting unfair advantages and, and, and so forth. So moving on to the category two symptoms. So these are the ones that are more the stuff that we see regularly. And that's the, you know, will they, won't they, did he, didn't he question mark of where we're at. So in terms of, and I'll go through these in a bit more detail than the category one um, symptoms. Funnily enough, a lot of them are possible category one symptoms. So a lot of them are, Maybe that's category one symptoms, but we can't be sure, certain for sure. So the first one is lying motionless. So anyone lying without purposeful, purposeful movement for greater than two seconds in the context of a possible head injury. So if they're not responding or replying um, to referees, other players or the play, that's the first one. So often the response is, you know, as a player, the recommendation for people not wanting to get taken off is, you know, don't try and get up straight away. So lots of people will just stay down so that they don't get up and stumble give themselves five or 10 seconds to compose themselves. It's just a bit of a stunner. I'm, all, I'm up and I'm okay. Mm. That in itself is considered a category two thing so that, you know, there's no evidence of this person stumbling. It's just because they didn't try and get up, right? Mm. So that's the first one. The next one's... Which is um, obviously an ambiguous thing because that could be, I got a poke in the eye and exactly. yeah. So there needs to be an assessment. So part of it is in the context of a possible head injury. Mm. So someone not moving because, um, you know, they have some other injury, mm. um, they have something else, they've got a, there's multiple other reasons they might not get up straight away. So it's in mm. the context of a head injury. So you're really thinking this guy's hit his head and he's not doing a lot. Um, worst case scenario, you get there and he's unconscious, right? And then mm. you've got a category one, they're done for the day. Um, the next two are, you know, possible evidence of a seizure, possible abnormal movements. So that's people who get into funny positions. Possible motor incoordination. So that's someone who did he stumble, didn't he stumble? You know, did he step in a hole? Like it's a bit hard to determine. The next one is is slow to stand in the context of a possible head injury. So if it takes up to 15 seconds for them to get up and get back into the play, you know, one are they are they gassed? Are they having a, mm. are they sucking it in, or are they just trying to, you know, gather Clear themselves so they don't so they don't make those stumbles. Um, well, I mean, you look Another at boxing, one, yeah. just to interrupt there, you look at boxing. Boxing gives you the 10 count, right? And that's where they say yeah. boxing can be uh, more detrimental to your head health um, because you get that 10 count to clear your head yeah. and then you go at it again. Whereas something like MMA, there's no 10 count. Like, even though it seems more violent, they, they do say that it's apparently not as bad because you don't get the option to, like, get 10 seconds to clear your head and then go again because yeah, sometimes that 10 seconds, not. that 10 seconds is you know, sometimes enough time for them to clear their head to go again. Yeah, definitely. Um, next couple of ones. So suspected facial fracture. So that one would qualify you. So if you've had a bony injury to the face, you've had enough force to break a bone in your face, one would assume you've had enough mm. force to rattle your brain. There you go. Well, that happened last night as well. One of the players went off with a schnoz. Yep. When he uh, went off so with you... a, a bleeding nose. And I mean, he did not appear to be concussed in any way, shape or form. And I always thought, funnily enough, I always thought they're just gaming the system. Yeah, you know, so it's a bit, where... it, yeah, it is a bit of a tricky one because I've seen and I've, as the sideline doctor, let plenty of people with split eyebrows keep playing. So you just you do need to try and make that assessment. So there's obviously a difference between, um, you know, an orbital fracture, so an eye, a fractured eye socket 
and a cut eyebrow. Like you've got um, you've got a bit of scar tissue in your eyebrows. They open up pretty easily. And you would say pretty clearly that you haven't had a injury, but you've got a cut. And so it's a suspected facial fracture, not facial injuries. Mm. And I guess one of the caveats being your nose breaks a bit easier than other things. So, you know, if you've got a suspected broken nose for the 17th time, you're probably less concerned about the head injury mm. um, versus if you've got a cheek fracture or a jaw fracture or a fractured eye socket, you know that that's mm. a significant amount of force um, that you need to be suspicious of. Um, the final one is clinical suspicion by the doctor. So if somebody goes, hey, I don't think, I think this is a, a tricky one, then, you know, that would be, um, that warrants you to, to make an assessment. Um, so those are the category two symptoms. So what do we do with those? And as we sort of already highlighted is those ones, those are the ones who come off for an assessment. Now, um, in most sports, there's a limited number of interchange because obviously a player who's not tired is going to be able to perform better than a player who's been on the mm. field being tired. So the concern is, one, people don't want to come to the field if they haven't got a head injury. And so if you've got a Category 2 sign or symptom, you know this player doesn't think they've got anything wrong, right? And they might not. But we have to find some way to safely assess them mm. without disadvantaging the individual or the team, right? So... You know, if you, if all your players had to come off to get assessed while the game keeps running, that, you know, that could lose you a game in, in a competitive, you know, elite sport environment. And so the HIA rules themselves are what try to protect that. So what they have in the NRL is you get this free interchange for up to 15 minutes. Um, and that's not 15 minutes game time. That's 15 minutes actual time if there's stoppages, et cetera, mm -hmm. to allow for an assessment. And part of the reason they go with the 15 minutes is, um, as you said, that questionnaire takes about 10 minutes to do. So you've got to do the, the five memory questions at least 10 minutes apart. You know, the initial registration of repeating the five words back to me or six words or how many words you want to use, um, depending on the specific um, uh, questionnaire you're using. And then at least 10 minutes later, you've got to do the delayed recall. Mm. So 15 minutes allows you to do that. Um, the whole idea is that you can, you can assess it for longer than that but you've got up to 15 minutes to have a free interchange. And what that means is if the player's cleared, they can go back on um, uh, for an, another player to come off um, as required. And I don't think it has to be the player who came on for them. I think it's just considered a free interchange. So it's mm -hmm. not like someone has to go on for 10 minutes and then come off because that gets a bit confusing. So if they don't get back within 15 minutes, they still can come back on, but they, they have to use an actual interchange. Mm -hmm. um, there is scope that if there is a second HIA, you can get an additional 10 minutes um, if, uh, if the doctor has to assess someone else at the same time. So there's a little bit of a logistic thing that there might be an occasion if you get two head knocks from the one team, you've only got one doctor, they might need 25 minutes because they've got to run two tests. Mm. So um, let's, we'll, we'll move on into re return to play stuff here. So yep. let's say, let's say they've failed, um, they've diagnosed with a concussion. Mm -hmm. What is what's the steps for someone who then wants to come and play the next week? Yeah, so the, uh, that's an interesting one. I guess one last thing I'll say about is if someone gets two HIAs in a game, irrespective if they don't get a diagnosis, they're done as well. So that's a that's a, a few other things. Um, in terms of what next, you, you've already talked about those ongoing symptoms, and what we want to make sure is that somebody is ready to return to sport. One for protection of their long-term brain health. Two, because, you know, 
um, you wouldn't feel safe as an individual. Same reason we don't let you drive your car while you're drunk. We shouldn't let you go and, you know, run at another person at 100 miles an hour if you're not all there, if you, you haven't got your reflexes, you haven't got your, your, your higher level brain functions, you know, it's not necessarily going to be safe if, if someone isn't um, up to it. And then obviously the protection from long-term injury, reducing the risk of that second impact syndrome, all those sort of things. So what, um, uh, stepping to the side for a second, so the way that we've learnt all this, or the way that this has been delivered to the medical sphere and how it's filtered down into sports is they've actually held um, a few international committees on sports concussion. Um, they've done it uh, now five times. I think the first time was around 2000 and they've had a, a, a subsequent several meetings since then. And it's from those um, meetings that they've actually developed the concussion assessment tools. And so that the SCAT-5, which is the current um, sports concussion assessment tool edition five is what we've used from the most recent consensus meeting. And that not only gives us the questionnaires that you would do as your baseline testing and as your on-field sideline testing, um, that also gives a guidance towards return to play. So each of the different codes may have their own specific return to play protocol. I was recently looking at a, um, a few things in the NFL. There's been a few recent high profile concussion incidents in the NFL um, where one, it looked like a guy was allowed back um, mm. as not being diagnosed with a concussion, played again four days later, had another head knock, ended up having a seizure and getting carted off to hospital. So that's mm. currently um, one that's quite um, notable in the media. So their, their protocol is a five-step protocol. Um, all of the protocols are a graduated return to play protocol. So for us uh, in Australia generally um, and within the NRL, we do a six-step return to play protocol. And basically there's a minimum of 24 hours between step progressions. And the whole concept of how you progress up that return to play is that you've got to be symptom-free before you can go to the next step. If you develop any of these symptoms, so lightheadedness, dizziness, nausea, um, balance, headaches, any of these sort of ongoing um, post-concussive symptoms, you, um, you drop back a step, okay? And you spend a little bit longer before you progress. So if someone is symptom-free, get a diagnosed concussion on a Sunday and they're symptom-free, they can progress through those six steps at a minimum of six days. So the fastest someone can get back to um, playing contact sport in that scope is essentially a week, a six-day period. Um, uh, in the NFL, it sounds like that's a five-day period because it's a five-step thing. And sometimes it can be a seven-step thing if you, you break it down, depending I, on- I actually think they're going to change this. I think they're going to change this to, to be a mandatory 10 days or something. Yeah, and there is a bit of that. There, there is a bit of that as well. So some of the protocols actually mandate that step one be a longer period. Mm. So when you look at the steps, essentially it starts with rest and then you go to light, um, light activity. So just walking, you know, getting the heart rate up a little bit, and then you move into higher intensity cardiovascular activity, and then you move to some more dynamic sport-like activity, and then you move to sort of contact drills once you're there. So it's like a a little a, a little incremental step. One of the things that a lot of the codes do, and I think the AFL particularly does this as well, is they actually mandate that step one, you can't progress within 24 hours. You need to have 72 hours of rest and, and nothing at all. Mm. And so often they, either the first or second step might limit that. Um, and I think in the AFL, they might have a two week, um, they can't return within two weeks or mm. something to that effect. And they probably do a similar thing. So I think in the NRL, you know, it's pretty unlikely to be back within a week. Um, mm. Most players will have that, that week. happens pretty regularly. 
Yeah, okay. So, and I guess it depends on their schedule as well. If they go from, uh, you know, a Thursday or Friday night game and they're not playing again until the, the Sunday, mm. maybe they've got eight or nine days. So there, there is a little bit of movement um, and there is a difference of whether you're doing it with younger groups. So I think it's a minimum 10 days, 10 to 14 days for kids. So a mm. little bit longer, okay. they're a bit more cautious. Um, interestingly, in kids, um, they're more likely to have a, a longer period of recovery if they get a proper concussion. So mm. it's actually... Um, significant higher numbers can have issues out to, you know, two to four weeks in the younger population compared to the adult population. Um, I, do know idea- with, uh, I do know with boxing and MMA and stuff like that, um, if they've had a concussion or knockout or something like that, it's, I think it's like a 90 day, 60 to 90 day, no contact. Yeah. Yeah. So I know a few of the different contact sports. Uh, so combat sports have a specific mm. um, sit out period. So I know one of them is like first concussion, it's 30 days. Or first, like knockout, it's a 30-day wait. If they have another knockout, it's a 90-day wait before they can fight again. And if they have a third one, they're out for 12 months. Not even fight again. It's train. Train, okay. Well, yeah, I think it's that's, like um, contact training. They're not allowed to spar. Yeah, okay. I know. I, I don't know if that's the it's one of the it's one of the combat federations mm. that I'm pretty sure do a 30, 90, and then 12 months, mm. and then after that, they've got to have an independent um, neurology assessment. And mm. some of them have that as well that they will have to have a formal assessment to make sure they're okay. Um, part of the issue, you know, comes down to like public liability to a certain sense, mm. um, workplace health and safety. Because at the end of the day, these elite players are, are employed by their their clubs, and you know that's why there's been a lot of litigation in the NFL, for instance, when they found out that there's potentially suppression of the evidence over some years um, that people were being put uh, into undue harm uh, without you know, informed consent. Mm. Uh, I fall on the side of um, allowing, uh, I'm more open to allowing people to make their own decisions and risk assessments. So Mm. I often make sure it's about people being informed. But at the end of the day, if they want to choose to engage in risky behavior, because lots of people, you know, do high risk employment, Mm. people work with explosive in minds, people work at heights, you know, it's not necessarily for other people to say this is too dangerous you shouldn't do it people do race car driving there's lots of things that people do that carry risk i think the important thing is that people need to be informed they need Mm. to know there is a a potential risk of lifelong issue x y and z Mm. um but i don't necessarily think um you know you should be banning contact sports or banning combat sports um if people are understanding going into it willingly without being you know necessarily coerced but that's just sort of my approach i know some other medical professionals and and, and people will be like well they should ban boxing they should ban this yeah you've I mean, got to look, find some balance yeah i think um you know i suppose people will kick the can down the road and go like i'll deal with that later when i'm 50 but it's like you know when you're 50 if you can't remember things at 50 that you're not that old you still well, got a lot of life, lot of, lot of life know, left you know? And that's that's a fine line that I often have to balance as a as a clinician and as someone who's interested in sport because I can understand the importance of sport to people to people's mental mm-hmm. health to people's sense of well being like what's your and you do need to weigh that up because at the end of the day um, you you often do need an external party to set, to consider that person's future health mm. because you know is it all about um, being able to do this certain thing as a twenty to thirty year old when you're potentially sacrificing, you know, healthy life and brain function in, in later years. And you've got to understand that there's a little bit of a, I guess it depends on where you are and what that risk is. Well, and I'll, and there has I'll, to use my own, I'll use my own example here. You know, I'm starting to get closer to 40. I'm still 
full contact kickboxing. I could tell you if I was finishing with headaches or if I was, fin- I, I wouldn't be doing it. Mm. Like if I was coming home with headaches every Saturday after sparring or, or, or I was just getting beaten up by people who were significantly better than me, mm. um, which happens. But, you know, like most of the people are, you know, half my age or, or close to half my age. Um, and most of the people I'm training with, uh, like their, their aim is they're fighting. If they're not fighting amateur, they're fighting professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, so like if I were leaving there with what I would consider dramatic injuries, I, I wouldn't continue doing it. But where I am at the moment, I'm like, look, I'm not leaving with headaches. I'm not leaving with injuries. I'm not leaving with these these other issues. Um and and over ten years of sparring, I think maybe or I have had an orbital fracture, um, and maybe one other concussion. Um, I don't know whether the orbital fracture was really a concussion either. To be honest, mm. um, I think over ten years, like I, I still feel pretty safe in what I'm doing. Um, and, and, and you're it all not, depends you're not on competing. The, you're not competing, and I'm not well. competing. It all depends on the comp- people that I'm with as well. You know, like there's there's certain people that I won't spar with. Because I'm like, I'm not going to spar with this guy. Like, like, is it going to injure you? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's if you're not, you're not competing. So, Mm -hmm. you're not literally trying to, you know, bash the other person's head in or have your head Mm -hmm. bashed. You're doing it for the health benefits. You're doing it for the social benefits. And Mm -hmm. so, I think, I guess the point that I was making is I think people should be allowed to accept some risk in doing these things. The question where it starts to get blurry and, and interestingly, one of the things that we still don't really have an answer to is at what point does that, past the threshold of risk acceptance when you then mm. say to an individual look it's time to give it up you know enough is enough mm. and whose decision is that is that the individual's decision you know is this person allowed to keep running out as long as they want to run out at what point do you as either the clinician or as the person's employer slash you know the club mm. even if it's a social sort of club like at what point do you then have to intervene and make the decision for the person I suppose one of the benefits. Yeah. I suppose one of the benefits of doing this now or having this done these these baselines is that you've got baselines. You know, like mm. so if you notice that someone's baseline is has slid over the last five years, they've had head yeah. knocks, and all of a sudden they were remembering when they used to remember five words, they're now remembering two, and they've had five head knocks over the last X amount of years. Like there's probably like you know amongst other things, but that's probably I suppose a warning sign there, and one of the benefits of of this continued baseline. Well, obviously, the more we learn about it, the better we better position mm. we're in to make these decisions. Um, I the reason I sort of thought of this is is for a few reasons. One, over the last few years, we've started to see players um, well before they would usually retire, retiring early for the reason of mm. recurrent concussions. Um, and also, in my own personal life, I had a I had a, a friend and colleague who had been advised after a concussion never to play contact sports again. And he, he'd come to see me as a, as a friend and a clinician to sort of get some advice on, mm. you know, was that, you know, was that the right advice? Um, because this is a person who's, you know, a large part of their identity was playing social sports. Um, it's one of the things that I have one, kept their I, mental I, health I, I going. I have one as well who, who was same. He was 22 and he played, you know, like whatever A-grade AFL. And same thing, he had some scans and the scans were showing like, the scans mm. were showing at that age he had issues and he, he had to stop. Yeah. So, and that's the interesting one because that can be relatively clear cut for for my example, you know, normal scans, no abnormal findings, scoring normally on the baseline, but he'd seen another clinician who had said, no, it's not worth the risk. It's your brain. Look after your brain. Mm. You know, why would you even do that? And that, and that's probably more of the, 
the uh, the clinician that maybe doesn't understand. It's, it's, the discussion, the it's, it's discussion of talking with doctors. Yeah, and it's the the person. It's when you see someone who decides that they know better than you and they know what you need. That um, that's probably something that we don't need to. Um, uh, we we often will discuss about the role of the the individual. So interestingly, when I explored this, I was amazed. There's no there's no real um, uh, universally accepted criteria of when you say is enough is enough hmm. um, because we might have seen uh, examples of players who've had you know a series of concussions in a season, multiple concussions over multiple seasons, and they've kept going versus others that maybe didn't seem to have too many and they've just disappeared and never come back. Hmm. Um, I guess to to wrap this up, some of the stuff that I found on on my review you've already touched on um, regarding things that would trigger you to recommend someone to retire. So one would be a severe neurological disturb, uh, disturbance. So like really bad injury. Um, obviously, if they've had any permanent changes after that injury, that would be advice of, hey, this isn't a transient, mm. you know, mild brain injury. You've potentially got some serious brain damage from this insult. A few of the other ones that we look at is a lowered injury threshold. So it's someone who, um, you know, I guess the glass, with the glass jaw sort of thought yeah. of, of someone who's had a, a big head knock, um, high, high, high level of force, high level of trauma, subsequently something that seems a bit more innocuous and they get another concussion. Hmm. Something like, you know, all of a sudden a pretty routine tackle, they get concussed again. Like, you know, if that threshold of what, results in a concussion is lower that's something we need to we need to think about decreased injury interval is another one because part of they think there's a significant amount of time before the brain recovers at a cellular level so even if you've got no symptoms you're 100 better you keep getting repeated um, levels of um, injury repeated insults you need to worry that that's going to potentially increase that risk of developing um, permanent long-term effects Imaging findings, so if it changes on imaging, we've got some objective measure to say there's been damage done. Uh, prolonged a level of symptoms, so one of the cutoffs they talk about is 90 days. So as you said, it took you about a month to recover. You would have seen different um, concussions in elite players that maybe it's a six to eight week recovery, 10 week recovery. Once they've still got symptoms at three months, that's when you need to mm. really have a hard discussion. Is it worth returning? Um, Cognitive impairment or um, changes in academic functional level. So if you're getting those objective changes, as you said, from those baseline screening, if you're finding their scores are going down, if you're finding they're starting to get forgetful, if you're finding that things are changing, um, that's probably enough to sort of address and, and go um, to reconsider. And then finally, professional motivation. So the threshold for telling you or me that we should maybe stop doing contact sports might be different to someone who's only got... A 10-year career to make enough money to support their family forever um you know you might need to have a consideration of what is what risk is this individual willing to accept mm. in order to you know pursue this interest or sport well you see that in the nfl you know like you've seen people retire after their first within their first five years of their career you know there's been players who've gone like all right well i've made my however many millions of dollars um in my first five years that's enough for me to invest Mm -hmm. And it's enough for me to, to live a happy life and, and I'm done, I'm out, you know, and, and they're still 20, like there's, there's been a few cases and they're under 25. No, no, they're just like, they've gone like not worth the risk anymore. Well, that's the decision you need to make at, at mm -hmm. each level. And, and obviously the higher level of competition, the higher potential 
you know, everyone's, uh, everyone's well, I mean, the, the, the more money bigger, as well, right? stronger run. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so those mean, are if, you, if you're, that, if you're an NRL player, you're, you're not, you know, there's only a handful of NRL players who are making, you know, a million dollars a year. You know, if you're an NRL player making $500,000 a year, it's a really good salary, but you're not going to be able to retire after, you know, two or three years, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, whereas, if but you're it, on, but if you're, you're on, on, you know, if you're on 80 grand a year, yeah. you know, you're not actually doing better than anyone. And, you know, if you're, if your skills other than playing rugby league are limited, you're mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to get you know skilled mm-hmm. work without retraining. You, you probably need to put a bit more in the bank. Before and then, you're able to and go. then on the on the flip side, the NFL players who might be signing contracts for twenty, thirty, forty million dollars, then they go they do that for two years. They do that for one year, and they're yeah. they're good for their rest of their lives. You know, so that's yeah. where that that will, will that'll change, and you see that more in something like an NFL as opposed to an NRL, at least. Currently, yeah, definitely, definitely. So th- those are all the things to sort of think about, and and finding a balance of what's important. The question is, on the organisational level, what level of risk is the organisation mm-hmm. willing to take? Because it is going to be that balance of you know how liable is the you know is the NRL going to be liable for letting these guys come back and play um, as we learn more and as we get a bit more information. Um, interestingly enough, all these guidelines are, are sort of pushed out to the community level. It's still not as good like community level footy. You know, mm. when I get asked to provide um, medical coverage for lower level footy and they want to ask about like, are we doing HIA? I, I generally, I, I would say, no, I'm not doing HIA. Most of these people haven't done baseline testing. Mm. Um, I don't care if it's a category one or a category two, they're going to be done for the day. So if you have any suspicion of a concussion, you sort of need to be able to be convinced it's definitely not a concussion. Otherwise, you're not really carrying the risk because... You know, a lot of the time I'm on the sideline to be there in case someone busts their ankle or, you know, X, Y, or Z, something else happens. I don't really have the capacity to disappear in the sheds for 10 mm. to 15 minutes to run someone through questions. Um, so you've got to understand a lot of the HIA stuff will really only exists at the higher tier levels where they've got logistics to support it. Community sport, any, any whisper of a possible head injury, that's the day's done. You start their recovery protocol. You get them reviewed by a doctor. Um, ideally a doctor who has some understanding, which, you know, it's a whole separate discussion that we have every time that, you know, sports mm. um, informed doctors and exercise informed doctors aren't that easy to necessarily come by, but there are community guidelines, um, uh, community level coaches and trainers have to go through this um, concussion recognition and training. Um, lots of the clubs need a, a doctor to sign off a return to play mm. um, document. And usually it's, you know, even if the doctor's not familiar you follow the protocol, um, you know, everyone just is more aware. A lot of this is about awareness, right? So it's understanding from the elite level down to the grassroots, why it's important, what we can do to protect people so that we can keep playing awesome sports and having fun. Perfect. Well, I think um, I think we'll wrap for today. And hopefully, you know, for those listening, you've, you've, you've got a bit of a better understanding on concussion, what it is, some of these protocols that you might see through elite sports. And, and I think as a follow-up episode, we'll, we'll probably dive into some brain health um, stuff uh, and some stuff that, that are good for your brain, whether it be supplements, whether it be exercise, whether it be whatever it might be. We'll probably dive into that on a on a future episode. Um, Craig, I think, thank you. Thank you for putting in the time and effort to, to tell us a little bit today about concussion. Uh, like I said, what it is and how it can impact us as well. So uh, yeah, thank you again for your time. No worries. Anyone who wants any more information, just reach out. And, um, you know, there's plenty of information out there. Um, But yeah, good to chat. And uh, hopefully we can raise some awareness.
Beautiful. All right, guys, thank you for listening to Bro Science, and we'll get you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you liked this show, share it with your friends, subscribe on iTunes, and leave us a five-star review. For show notes and free training on how to grow your fitness business, visit www.fitnesseducationonline.com.au. Are you a fitness professional looking to provide your clients with personalized meal plans? Check out Mealsy, the ultimate solution for creating custom meal plans in just a few simple clicks. With Mealsy, you can say goodbye to countless hours spent on meal planning. Our Australian meal planning web app is designed to save you time and effort so you can focus on what really matters, your clients and their success. Mealsy provides you with a vast library of recipes, all created by nutrition professionals. From breakfast to dinner and everything in between, we've got you covered. Whether you want to create a custom meal plan tailored to your client's needs or choose from our selection of ready-made meal plans, Mealsy has the flexibility to accommodate your preferences. So why waste precious time and energy creating meal plans from scratch? Let Mealsy do the heavy lifting for you, or you focus on delivering exceptional fitness services. Join the community of fitness professionals who have revolutionized their business with Mealsy. Visit our website at www.mealsy.com and sign up today. Mealsy, the smarter way to meal plan for fitness professionals.